Welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. This podcast is a project for the ABA section of dispute resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. I'm Aaron Gotthelf. This week, I'm sitting with American Arbitration Association President and CEO, Bridget McCormick, to discuss her transition from Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court to President and CEO of the American Arbitration Association. Bridget McCormick is the former Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, overseeing the state's judicial system encompassing 244 courts and 560 judges. She has taught law at the University of Michigan and is currently a strategic advisor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law's Future of the Profession Initiative. She is a member of the boards of directors of Kids Kicking Cancer, the National Association of Treatment Court Professionals, and the Conference of Chief Justices. Justice McCormick is the vice chair of the ABA's Council on Legal Education and Mission to the Bar. She's a graduate of the NYU School of Law and Trinity College. Welcome, Bridget. It's great to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, before I uh, get in trouble with my listening audience here, I'd just like to, to mention that I'm going to be referring to you as Bridget throughout this uh, presentation, and you've been very gracious to allow us to, to refer you by your first name. Uh, you've spent a long time earning that title, so we, I, want, I want to respect it, you know? Okay, but not allow, require. I want to be called Bridget. Like, okay, okay, yeah, that is not... the requirement, Bridget. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. 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 Okay, so obviously my first question to start off would be, is is uh, why were you interested in taking on the role? And if you could kind of give us just a brief kind of origin story about how you found out about the position, kind of what you can talk about the process of interviewing and all that kind of stuff, I think the audience would find that interesting. Yeah, well, obviously, I was interested in taking the position because it's um, such a tremendous organization with really incredible people who work here. And, you know, what a pleasure to get to work with talented, motiv- motivated, creative um, people trying to figure out how to make the world a better place by giving people better options for um, working through disputes and maybe preventing them in the future. I love, by the way, that that your 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 podcast title is not only about dispute resolution, but also prevention. Um, I do think when we do dispute resolution well, we can um, help people prevent the next dispute. And that that feels like one of the, um, for me, real honors of, of, of working in, in the ADR field. Um, I, I care a lot about the public justice system. Obviously, I spent 10 years on the Michigan Supreme Court and for as the court's um, chief, which, you know, the Michigan Supreme Court, like every state Supreme Court is charged administratively with um, administering all the courts of the state that's in Michigan between three and 4 million cases a year are adjudicated in the, in the public courts. Most people navigate those courts without lawyers. That really means uh, there's really important work to do. Again, people don't usually come to court because like things are going great. They usually end up in court yeah. because something's not going great. Um, so the kind of service you can provide them and the way you can help them resolve problems, it's, it's really important. It's a, it's an honor. It's a privilege. But, you know, the the public justice system has all kinds of uh, barriers to to just providing good service to the people who need it. Um, You know, it's publicly funded. You have to convince another branch of government to give you the money for good programs. It's um, sadly, you know, politics has crept into um, a lot of a lot of uh, judicial elections. And uh, on the Michigan Supreme Court, there are seven justices. You have you need you need three of your colleagues to agree agree with you if you're going to make any uh, change that might benefit the public. Um, So those are a lot of 
a lot of barriers to just kind of delivering good service. And so the opportunity to work at the AAA alongside so many talented people, all just moving in the same, you know, we're just moving in the direction of like providing better service to people who need more options and better options. Feels like um, a dream in a way, like getting rid of all the hard parts and the bad parts of about delivering good um, justice service to people um, and just holding on to the, the, the good parts is a pleasure. Uh, the process was interesting. I I I I was reached out to about the position by um by the headhunter the board had hired and uh didn't didn't know that it was coming open and started, you know, kind of learning more about the AAA. Obviously, I everybody knows the AAA and I knew the AAA and you know at the as a justice obviously decided cases where arbitration was uh, a legal issue in them. But I did not understand um, how sophisticated an organization the AAA has grown in its 97 years, how much it did, you know, all the different things the AAA does that um, are pretty tremendous. Um, And so the more I learned about the organization, the more interested I got. And then I got to talk to board members. And um, I just got more and more excited about about the opportunity um, as as the process went along and then was um, fortunate enough to be offered the position. And here I am, I don't know, four months in or something like that. Well, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say that I was not entirely sure kind of what direction uh, AAA was going to go with the position. Part of me said to myself, well, maybe they're going to get some, you know, retired partner from one of the big consulting firms that has like a Harvard MBA or something like that and wants to come in and kind of look at how the business is run and kind of make decisions like that. As opposed to, I think it's, it's, it's actually a breath of fresh air. I'm glad that somebody coming off the bench uh, took the position, and I think that's a that's a, a great direction to go in leadership, which actually is a great segue into my next question here. How do you feel your experience as an academic and on the bench have influenced your leadership style? I love this question um, because I I actually hadn't slowed down to think about it much, but I bet it's relevant, right? I mean, I, I've I've spent you know ten years on the Michigan Supreme Court, where even when you're the chief justice. Uh, you still, as I said before, you still need three more, three, three additional votes to 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 get anything done. Um, and so you really have to collaborate um, with your colleagues. It's it's pretty critical. And frankly, even though we have administrative oversight of all the courts of the state and all the judges across the state, you don't you, you kind of have to like get things done with carrots and sticks, but they're kind of those little mini carrots and they're kind of twigs, you know. So it's a lot of convincing people to come along that the that that what we're doing is is the right thing to do and uh and and you want them to follow you. And academia is kind of similar. I was actually the associate dean at the University of Michigan Law School for the, I guess the 10 years before I was elected to the court. So I spent 10 years technically in a leadership position, but, you know, same thing. All my colleagues are separately tenured. You know, my colleagues on the Michigan Supreme Court were separately elected. So like right. at the end of the day, they don't have to do what I say and do whatever they want. So you have to convince people to come along. Same with same with faculty. They're, they're separately tenured. I mean, you know, I, I guess uh, unless they're not yet tenured, but once they are, you, you have to convince people um, to come along, to work together, to collaborate. Um, and that that style, I think, suits me personally. So maybe I found my way into those kinds of leadership positions because it suited me personally, or maybe, you know, I grew up as a leader with that style and format of leadership. And so that's where that's where I've landed. But I, I, you know, I'm pretty lucky that the AAA has so many talented um, leaders across the organization, you know, in every business stream and all the shared services. I mean, I'm really impressed with the people who work here, uh, including you, Aaron. And I think we have like great 
great, you know, great, great teams that um, will do great things, but we, I, I only want them to do them if they think it's the right thing, not because I said so. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I also think it's super interesting. Uh, what, what motivated you? Uh, so you were you were obviously teaching as a professor, and then you wanted, I guess, move into more of a management role and into one of the, the dean dean positions. What what sparked your curiosity in that kind of transition? So in at the law school, you still keep a full teaching load when you're the associate dean. You just get like a little extra pay. Yeah. Um, and I was recruited into that position. In fact, um, I was only on the faculty four years and the previous associate dean who had my position was taking another position at another law school and i was they tenured me early to to get me to to take that job so i was kind of recruited into it i'm not sure i knew what i was getting into when i got into it i ended up loving it and i think building the program and making it um impactful in ways that um that really made a difference but i'm i'm but but it, it was not i did not slow down and think about it carefully I'll, right. I'll, I'll admit that well you partially answered this i guess in uh my last question or but i'd just like to say um what have you been most impressed with at AAA besides me obviously yeah i mean <laughs> you there's you yeah no, I, I actually do have to say it's the, the people is number one. It's the, the most impressed with is a really hard question, Aaron, because I'm impressed with an awful lot. But the people is number one. Like I, I am, um, you know, just thrilled with how talented, energetic, creative, um, hardworking and fun. So many of the people are who work at the AAA. Like I just feel really lucky to work with such a really terrific group of people. I mean, I, you know, uh, obviously the culture that that has been built here precedes me. I can't take any credit for it, but you all have built a wonderful culture. And I think it attracts and retains just excellent people. And there is no greater pleasure than working with um, people you really like and respect. You know, we spend a lot of time at work or on work, you know, and uh, it makes a difference if the people you work with are people you really like and respect. And, and that's how I feel about um, everyone at the AAA. But I mean, you know, that's just tops. Second, I'm really impressed with how much the AAA does and does well. You know, like like in any given day, there'll be people, you know, running a cybersecurity boot camp over here and, a, and a, an enormous election over in New York and presenting to the, the healthcare law section in San Diego. And the number of different things the AAA does well is pretty incredible. Um, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, I, I could go on. There's a, I have a long list of things I'm impressed by, but. I'd have to, I'd have to say that that's one of the things that I like most about AAA is the people that I get a chance to work with and just seeing the camaraderie and, and all the teamwork that kind of goes into behind the scenes at, at what we do. I, you know, I, I, a lot of folks, probably have no idea how much goes into to, to running an ADR organization, but this has um, just been you know, a great experience uh, for yeah, me. Yeah, I've seen it with some of your teams. I know you're, you were part of the, the, that healthcare team is unbelievable. I mean, they're, you, 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 you guys are just, you know, really figuring out how to talk to the people who need our services and then meet their needs. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really forward-thinking, customer-focused work that that you all are doing, and like you said, doing it really collaboratively, which I which I do think um, shows in in yeah. in the in the excellent product. Yeah. Well, I I can't certainly can't take all the credit for that. In fact, most of the credit for that goes to Michelle Skipper, who spent a long time um, putting together uh, the healthcare team and kind of how we operate, and as well as uh, um, you know our advisors and whatnot. 
And uh, that healthcare conference, uh, it's it's probably one of the, the most well-won, best-produced conferences uh, I, I've been a part of. So really hats off to Michelle and, and Sarah and everybody uh, yeah, for they're, doing that. That's right. Michelle is a rock star. I have no doubt about it. Yep. I've definitely seen that up close. Yeah. And as well as um, uh, Nicole and Jen, our, our dedicated team here in oh, Fresno. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're Nicole, I got to see Nicole and Jen last week in Fresno um, again, and it was wonderful to see them. They they are great too. Yeah, Nicole and Jen and Sarah and Michelle and I had a wonderful time in San Diego, and we missed you. So yeah, yeah, I, I believe me, I wanted I wanted to be there. It's it's been <laughs> it's been an interesting couple of months for me. I'll tell you that. Yes, yes. Um, okay. Um, what sets AAA apart from other ADR providers, and does being a nonprofit lead to greater public trust? And I and I, I mentioned that because obviously, in the in the media recently, there's there's been a lot of discussion about ADR and ADR providers and whether we're we're providing a good service. Yeah, um, I actually think that the fact that the AAA is a nonprofit, but more than that, the the reason why the nonprofit was founded really does set it apart from um, the, the many other providers that people can go to if they want to. Um, you know, when the AAA was founded 97 years ago, it was it was founded to help out the courts. The courts were, it was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Their courts were um, pretty overloaded with cases. Sound familiar? Kind of yep, like today. Yep, um, yep, right. And the AAA was 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 founded as as a way to increase access to justice. Um, if the public justice systems could handle every single case and do it efficiently and you know quickly, and um, we there there probably never would have been a, a need for the AAA. Or if they had been you know funded sufficiently sometime in the last ninety seven years so that they could take on all the cases, you know maybe the AAA would have gone out of business. But the truth is uh, there is still a need for um, alternatives to litigation, which can can be a struggle and is especially a struggle nowadays um, with backlogs as a result of the pandemic. Um, courts really did a tremendous job working their way through um, keeping people safe. In, in the middle of a global pandemic, but it, it meant uh, a lot of backlogs were built up. And, and as you might imagine, criminal cases have to take a priority in the, in the public courts. Sure. And so having alternative places for people to go to resolve their disputes um, is more important than ever. And the fact that the AAA is a nonprofit is one of the things that I do, I do think is an important differentiator. But on top of that, it's not it, the AAA's ability to um, do whatever customers want or need pretty quickly and effectively is pretty tremendous. And that too, I think, is a differentiator. I mean, we just have a really deep bench um, doing information services. You know, we were able to pivot during the pandemic to remote hearings. Uh, you know, overnight. Um, and now we can offer basically bespoke services. You want this part of your hearing on Zoom? Sure. You want this part in person? Sure. We can do whatever it is you want. We can do it right away. We can do it whenever you want it. Um, we can help you find the kind of person who you need to decide the dispute. You know, we can really provide the excellent service because of the deep and talented bench that we have. And that too, I think, really separates us from our competitors. We, there's just no, nobody has the shared services teams like we do, or the, frankly, the, you know, bespoke case management that we do, you know, we really have the best of the best and it, and it shows uh, when you talk to our customers. I was doing a presentation on Friday at Stanford on our, our hearing technology and our ability to handle uh, remote hearings and hybrid hearings. 
And I, I pointed out to folks that a lot of people think that uh, this is all just the last three years during COVID. We made some incredible pivot to some completely new technology, but a lot of this technology we, we had in our hearing rooms and, and whatnot was actually in place well well before COVID. I actually I remember uh, in the San Francisco office when they were doing the construction and they were mounting the the new TV monitors and putting in the, the mics in the ceiling and all that kind of stuff. So um, you know it's been in the works for a while and and unfortunately we had a, a to, to test it with COVID, which which is which is unfortunate. But um, it's nice to see how all that works and I think a lot of attorneys really appreciate it and they kind of want to continue with using the technology even in a post-COVID world. So it's great. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, going to be just another differentiator for, for us. You know, we, we're going to give the customers what they want in terms of, you know, remote in-person half and half. Um, and the, you know, courts are in a, a difficult position, just like I said before, you know, judges are separately elected and uh, they, they're going to, they're going to do hearings how they want them. And, you know, a lot of uh, courts are just going back to everything in person, which doesn't necessarily make economic sense for every single dispute or every single customer. So we, you know, again, we'll be able to provide a service um, that complements the public justice system. And that's part of our mission. And that is, you know, something that differentiates us. And I'd like to point out too that these services are are available global for our hearings. Um, a lot of what people think it's the American Arbitration Association. They might not necessarily think of ICDR or International Division, but you know we resolve disputes uh, from all over the world, and this technology will only help facilitate that. So you you answered um, kind of. I guess I'm going to skip over this question because it was actually about how the pandemic has led to changes in arbitrations and if such changes would, would be permanent. But let me ask you about the uh, the permanency. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think we have seen kind of a permanent shift in the way evidentiary hearings and, and arbitrations in general kind of are, are carried out? Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, you know, th there are gonna be certain um, disputes. It's funny, we're just kind of collecting information about this now and certain, there'll be certain uh, kinds of disputes and maybe certain regions where people prefer, you know, in-person over virtual. And there'll be some kinds of disputes in some regions where people prefer completely virtual. People like the, the idea that if you have a virtual hearing, it opens up who might be your panelists to basically the whole world. You can find a panelist anywhere if, you're, if your hearing is virtual. It really gives you right. new options. Um, and, and then there are lots of other cases in between where it's never going to make sense to fly a witness across the ocean for an hour of testimony again, right? Like that clearly is never going to, well, hardly ever going to make sense um, in many cases. Um, so I, you know, I think the technology only gets better and better. Um, you know, there's still, I think, a, a sometimes some, not not at the AAA's facilities, but I I do a lot of hybrid appearances in speaking events and law school classrooms, and it is quite variable sometimes, the hybrid technology. But again, we're in a position to actually focus on getting that done extremely well for our customers. Um, and so I, I have no doubt that it's it's all here to stay. We'll be delivering virtual services whenever somebody wants them. Yeah, one thing that I've really enjoyed is I I, I teach a class on uh, uh, drafting arbitration clauses, and um, I've done it for a couple of different law schools now, and I do it on Zoom, but I share my screen and I I use Clause Builder, which is our you know our online interactive service that allows you to draft a, 
an arbitration clause that fits your requirements. And it's pretty cool as I, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the students at the same time, I'm, I'm drafting the clause live in front of them. And oh, wow, uh, that's great. That's a great idea for a class. That's a good use of Zoom, right? Because you're, I mean, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I bet they really enjoy that, Aaron. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they ask me, they can ask me questions live as I, as I go along the way, and I can stop and show them exactly why I chose to do this or didn't chose to do, to do that. And it's, it's been great. Um, uh, could you discuss the importance of having a diverse arbitrator panel and what the AAA is doing to increase diversity? Yeah, I, I mean, um, we, we at the AAA believe that having um, a diverse panel is critical to the credibility of dispute resolution. I mean, just like I think having a diverse bench in the public justice system is really important to people um, understanding and accepting the court's judgments. The same is true in, in private dispute resolution. You know, you, if, if the, if the, panel of people who make decisions in private dispute resolution doesn't reflect our communities, um, you end up with a public trust problem. So it is imperative that um, those of us in the business of alternative dispute resolution make sure we develop and show the parties um, that they have choices um, when they when they select their panelists. Um, so we're doing a lot. I mean, you you know you know well because you're involved in it day to day. Yeah. But our right. our um, our staff are um, constantly recruiting diverse panelists, um, and then we're um, holding ourselves to account for the people we put on a list when when parties um, are in, involved in an arbitration and making sure uh, a good number of those folks are diverse. We just recently signed on to the Rake Corollary um, Initiative. Pledge. I heard about that. That congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled. I mean, uh, GP, uh, CPR and Jams and the AAA are all now signatories to it, and I think that's a big that's a big deal. Um, that'll make a yeah. that'll make a big difference. But we're also building the pipeline. I mean, we have for a long time um, uh, recruited the Hagenbotham Fellows, who yeah. are diverse um, junior-ish lawyers. I mean, they're, they're actually, they're, they're a pretty big range, but to expose uh, sort of the next generation, if you will, of diverse panelists to the AAA and get them mentoring and um, and support and help build their um, their careers as as neutrals. Um, and we also do a, a, a diverse law student initiative to, to even start this process um, even earlier than, than when people have already passed the bar. So and I think you kind of have to do all of it. And there's more as well. We spend a lot of time, you know, connecting with diverse bar associations um, and other organizations where we can make sure we recruit and then retain excellent diverse panelists. Um, but but in my view, you have to you have to be working across the spectrum like that. We're starting in law school and then, you know, working on uh, junior lawyers or newer lawyers, I guess I should say. They don't have to be junior. People can go to law school whenever they want. Um, and then um, it's got to be part of your everyday commitment to um, look at who's on your panel and, and see who's missing. Um, it's it's critical to to public trust. And, and to, along the lines of the Higginbotham Fellowship uh, Program, just the importance of mentoring. So I'm constantly asked as somebody who's, you know, been in the industry for a number of years by uh, uh, neutrals that want to come on board and, and enter the ADR world, kind of how you build a successful practice. And I say one of really the most important things is to is to find somebody who's been successful in the space before and kind of ask them 
um, how they've built their practice and try to find a, a mentor in the industry. And mentorship is, is so important. And I, I tell the same thing too to law students as they're starting their legal careers. I mean, I'd love to tell people that I learned everything I know about the law in law school, but both of you and I know that that's not true. Uh, right. <laughs> a, a lot of the, the the skills I learned as an attorney were, were things that I learned on the job because somebody that was more senior than me was mentoring me. And um, I'm glad that you know we're working that into ADR. Yeah, I completely agree, Aaron. I think mentor, mentoring is everything, yeah. Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, the Next Level Mediation Platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at nextlevelmediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code A, B, A, discount, 20 for a 20% discount. All right, so now main a little bit more of a, a serious part of our discussion, um, and you know this stems from various laws and things like that that are in various stages of being passed, um, both at the state level as well as the federal level, possibly. Um, how can arbitration improve its public image as various states attempt to pass laws banning or restricting arbitration, especially in consumer and employment contexts? Yeah, this is such an interesting issue, um, and I feel like there's kind of a disconnect. Um, I mean, first of all, we don't we're the lawmaking bodies can make whatever policy decisions they make. It's not our you know our our job is not to make policy policy decisions. Our job is uh, to make sure that parties who are using our processes, whether they're arbitration, mediation, or some other um, early dispute resolution process. Um, that they have the support and the resources they need. And that's especially true for self-represented parties, which yes. I think are more common in consumer and employment cases. But um, so that's why we, you know, we, we do a, um, a we, we, we do a lot to make sure that self-represented parties have the information um, and the tools that they need to be able to um, understand the process, have their, have their, com their concerns heard, um, understand the result of the process and what comes next. And, and frankly, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm a big supporter of the public justice system. I think it's really critical that it works well and the public trusts it. But have you ever been in a busy uh, consumer docket in a public courthouse? I mean, it's a wreck. I mean, the number of people that are just defaulted because they don't even understand what's happening. They never got the notice. They, you know, they they can't afford lawyers and no one gives them any information. They, we speak in Latin, basically. I mean, we speak in a language that's like not one they can understand. It's not like that's not a great option either. And on the other hand, there have been these really successful diversion programs in uh, sort of adjacent to courts um, in busy dockets. So you might have read about during during the pandemic, almost every state got some COVID funding and set up eviction diversion programs. They mm -hmm. were unbelievably yep. successful. Like 
enormously successful. It turns out when people have an option to, you know, go to an alternative dispute process, even if the court sends them there, they get better results because they actually get to like tell someone, a neutral, about their, you know, why they think they, you know, shouldn't have to move out and buy some time and get some funding. There's now a bunch of those programs being set up in debt collection cases, which is another really busy docket with self-represented parties in courts. And it's it's kind of, it's interesting because it's what we already do that you know we we actually we are, we provide that forum for um, people who have to navigate these these justice issues um, on their own and we think it's part of our duty um, we require those those kinds of clauses to meet our due process standards and uh, that's a protection that you you wouldn't have um, necessarily in in other uh, dispute resolution uh, places and so I think the question isn't. Yeah, I mean, again, policymakers are going to do what policymakers are going to do. We're just going to make sure that if people are resolving their disputes in our processes, that they have all the information and the tools and the help to be able to um, really have their day in 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 their hearing um, and really have their concerns heard. And we can do that incredibly well. Um, so I actually am a little bit on the offense about this because, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that there are these really successful diversion programs for evictions and debt collection cases and um, and now um, even family cases um, where we know that ADR works really well. Let's model those. I mean, we we can show you how it's done. So I'm not, I'm actually I'm 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 ready to talk about what we do well in those cases. So. No, I definitely do know where you're coming from. In a, in a prior life, I would uh, uh, represent my uh, my employer in small claims court and some collections actions. And um, yeah, so you spending, know exactly what I mean. Yeah, spending an entire day waiting for your case to be heard, and sometimes they run out of time, and and it's yep. it's it's not the best system. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, in uh, in the other programs you were discussing, you know, at AAA we had uh, done a program for Hurricane Katrina, and I believe one yeah. for Superstorm Sandy, where you'd kind of do a, a pre-mediation where a policyholder would sit down with the carrier and try to work out some sort of settlement to prevent something from having to actually go to court. And, you know, that's a better way to resolve things than 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 traditional litigation all around and just the absolute yeah. backlog that of, of cases that the courts are seeing. <clears throat> One thing that I've been really um, uh, interested in about you is uh, you're you're really into technology and uh, you're into AI and AI is really kind of a hot topic right now. Uh, everyone's talking about you know ChatGPT and, and and whatnot and, and and you probably heard a couple of attorneys got in trouble with it using it to, to research some case law. So uh, AI is not perfect when it comes to doing legal research as we've learned, but uh, is artificial intelligence the future of ADR? And uh, I mean, could AI one day replace arbitrators? Okay, so first on those lawyers, um, those those stories said more about those lawyers than they did about GPT-4 <laughs> or any other search. That, you you got to be kidding me. Like, who doesn't know that, you know, if you're just using the GPT-4 platform, it's going to hallucinate. I mean, you, you had to, but did you not, did you not read anything? You can, there are generative AI platforms that are trained on, legal material that don't hallucinate. That's what co-counsel is. You know, co-counsel, which is a product by Case Text, is a um, generative AI product that's built on uh, legal texts and does not hallucinate it. They, they've put guardrails up. And so if you just use the right product, you, you could have done your brief. Um, so so I, I don't think there's this generative 
AI that has arrived since you know November when GPT-3 was first released, it's a game changer for the business of law and the practice of law. And you know, those of us who do who work in ADR services um, are are pretty engaged with the practice of law and the business of law. So there is no doubt um, that we're going to have to be thinking about all the use cases for generative AI and what we do. Some of them are probably, you know, easy and obvious. We, as you know, Aaron, we have we have people across the business already using these products, and we're that we meet weekly to figure out what use cases um, make our work faster, better, more efficient. Um, obviously, not with putting any confidential case information, but you know, I use I I, I have two generative AI programs up on my computer all day, every day. Um, I do a lot of writing, I do a lot of speaking, I do a lot of researching, and they are incredibly helpful. I, they've replaced Google for me. I don't, you know, it's a, it's a game changer. I do think, I, I don't, I, I don't know, that, that, will there someday be um, an AI that might decide, you know, some disputes, maybe some disputes that have a lot in common where you had a big data set and you could train the data set um, to be able to make decisions that people had confidence in that's cert that's certainly possible in, in in if you had a caseload that's a large enough caseload where so much was in uh, the cases had enough in common that you really could train the data set i mean maybe you could train it so that ai could produce a first answer you know like a first answer and if parties liked it they could they could get out of the case pretty quickly and cheaply and easily and if they didn't like it they could proceed to a human a human uh, uh decision maker over just an ai um, so, but I, so I guess my answer is there, AI is not going to replace arbitrators or panelists or neutrals or arbitration. Um, but I do think that those of us who use it, um, panelists and dispute resolution providers like you and me, um, are going to replace those who don't. So okay. I, it's, I, it is definitely a game changing moment. I mean, I don't know if the singularity has arrived exactly, but it may have. It's, it's definitely a game changer. It's it's amazing how how powerful a tool is, but at the same time, it can make many of the most human mistakes. I mean, uh, not to go off topic too much. I we I was I was on a ski trip in Utah this year, and um, driving back to the airport, and uh, I'm trying to find the radio station that uh, the NFC Championship game was on um, to see my you know my Niners get beat down unfortunately by the Eagles, right? And um, for whatever reason, Google wasn't coming up with the answer. So, so my wife in the car just throws up the, the chat GPT and it's amazing how chat GPT gave the most elaborate history of various radio stations in Utah that used to carry the game and future radio stations and the history of the NFC championship game and all this stuff. And at the end, it couldn't answer the question. Yeah. Right? I was just <laughs> looking for the radio station number to set on the on the radio um it, so. it can't do that because gpt was only trained on data through 2021 so it can't tell you anything modern go to the bing search engine if you go to bing, which bing. Is, yeah go right. to bing that's built on gpt and it's but it has um up-to-date information so i use both i have bing and gpt4 um yeah. up all the time and i recommend uh doing it that way and that's another important thing to to mention. If you're not obviously using the most recent form of ChatGPT, it's it's it only goes back. You know, it, there's, there's there's a gap there as far as um information. Yeah, and it doesn't mean to lie to you. I, I'm sure you understand. I mean, it, it's yeah. code, right? It's just like it's predicting the next word. So it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually like it's not really trying to lie to you. It, it can't. So help at, 
At AAA, as far as artificial intelligence and how it can can help our, our panelists, you know, I was thinking basic things like helping them format an arbitration award. It's not going to necessarily pick a winner and a loser and choose, you know, the amount of money to, to dole out, but literally just proper formatting of awards is very important. Yeah, that that that's a that's probably a no-brainer. I bet there I bet there are more uses as well. I mean, you'd want the agreement of the parties, but you could imagine a, a very document-heavy case where um, the parties would prefer having the documents review, reviewed by um, and summarized by co-counsel instead of the arbitrator, you know, charging for all of the time to go through them. And if they agreed right. on the summary, they might prefer that because it would be, you know, zero dollars instead of many more dollars. Um, so you, you could imagine that, that there will probably be lots of use cases. And those of us who are thinking about those first are going to be able to provide more value value to our customers sooner. And that's that's what we're committed to doing at the AAA, right? That's right. Arbitration is supposed to be a, a more efficient, cost-effective way to resolve disputes than traditional litigation. And we, we have to find ways to, to, to make yeah. that true. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. And, um, and like I said, I, I know you've, you've given this presentation uh, before other groups and we only have a, a little bit of time left. So it can just be very brief, but uh, in a few words, uh, could you give us uh, your, your vision of AAA's future? Oh, well, gosh, I mean, I, so to be honest with you, I feel like we're in the middle of a strategic planning process right now because um, A, I want to learn as much as I can before I think I should, I can confidently say what my vision of AAA's future is. But at the same time, um, I feel like we are in the middle of such a moment of tremendous, tremendous transition for legal. Um, the, as I said, the business of law, the practice of law, that I am not exactly sure where the puck is going to be, but we're going to be where it is. I mean, the the one thing that I feel confident about is we can we can provide what our customers want. Um, we are incredibly agile for a, we're basically like a 97 year old startup. Like it's pretty incredible what this team is able to do. Um, and so where the market moves is where we're going to be. Um, we're not, we don't sell widgets, right? We provide a service. We want to make sure um, businesses, but also people can have better choices for how they resolve disputes. And if that means a an arbitration like it, you know, a, a, like it has always looked, that's something we're going to be able to do. And if it's um, figuring out uh, new and more efficient ways, we're going to do that too. We're going to do it all. Okay, very good. Now, I um, as we wrap up, I, I have to, to ask you this, and uh, I'll, I'll repeat it a few times for a listening audience who <laughs> might want to pull up YouTube. You know where I'm going with this. Uh -oh. um, you, you have a, a famous sister uh, in Hollywood, uh, if you will, and um, you, you were, you know, running for your position, uh, uh, your judicial position, and had some some help putting together a really cool television commercial. I'm a big fan of the West Wing. I absolutely love it. Can you tell us the story uh, behind the cast of the West Wing recording? You know your 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 judicial action commercial. Uh, did you come up with the script? <laughs> I I learned so much about the nonpartisan section of of a ballot. Like I, I like it was really a learning experience for me. And just before you go into that, for our audience, if they, if they do go to YouTube and they want to see the commercial, which is still up there, type in West Wing Walk and Talk the Vote. That's West Wing Walk and Talk the Vote. Sorry, I had to ask because it's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> 
Yeah, I have to say running for um, I, I am not a fan of running for office as a judge. I find it really awkward because, you know, you don't you're not like you can't promise results. Right. You can promise right. to work really hard. You can, you know, but uh, so I but so I I I was um, somewhat ill at ease throughout my campaign because of that. And that was basically the most fun day. But um, it was my sister's idea. She was like, what if the, what if the you know, the West Wing cast did something about the nonpartisan section of the ballot. I mean, the thing about that, in, in some states, people run on the judges run on the partisan section of the ballot. And then I guess people just, you know, vote the partisan ticket and they're voted in. Um, in, in Michigan, you're, you're, you run on a, a nonpartisan section of the ballot, even though you're nominated by parties, which is all kind of weird. But, but I'll, so the drop off is very high. A lot of people who vote for all of the partisan offices just don't cast a ballot at all in, in the Supreme Court race. And yet, you know, it's an equal branch Super of government. Super important. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's kind of a big deal. And they, but a lot of people um, just don't vote because they get to that section of the ballot and they're like, oh, I don't know who's who, because they're, they yeah. don't have any you know, D or R next to their name. So they just don't vote. So we, so my, my sister said, what if we did a little educational piece with the West Wing cast on, um, on the nonpartisan section of the ballot? And, 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 and maybe that would, you know, bring some attention to, to people um, making sure they, they cast a ballot um, for their judges. And so it was uh, written by a friend of ours who, who is a writer, but he, we went to college with him and um, he, he, he wrote it and she called it, you know, she called Brad Whitford and Martin Sheen and one after one after another, they were all like, yeah, sure, I'm in. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. And like before we knew it, we had like basically the whole cast. I mean, I think everybody but Rob Lowe is in that thing. It was it was amazing. Yeah. Anyways, that was that was absolutely fantastic. And I had to watch it a couple of times. I thought it was so good. <laughs> so uh, congratulations on that. And well, thank you very much for your for your time, and and I enjoyed this greatly. And you know, this this is broadcast out to a, a, an audience of primarily folks in the ADR field, but we we always hope that uh, just general attorneys, ABA members, whatnot, listen to it as well. And I think um, they're going to be fascinated with uh, your story. And and thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the fun conversation. Mm -hmm.